Welcome back, true crime listeners. I'm Kayla. And I'm Kayla's mom, Alicia. And you are listening to True Crime Exposed. our show before, you know who we are. But just in case you haven't, we are a mother-daughter duo that created True Crime Exposed to not only expose some of the worst people that exist among us and commit these horrific crimes, but we mostly created it to give each victim's story exposure because we support the life of anyone that was taken from us unjustly. We want to share these stories so that we can be victim advocates. We love being that voice for those that no longer have one. We want to get stories out there that need to be heard. And today's case, I want to warn you from the beginning, is a hard one. It's a case of child abuse. Child abuse doesn't get talked about as often in the true crime community. This is because child abuse is one of the hardest things to talk about and to think about, but that's also why it needs to be talked about. As you'll see, child abuse is an epidemic. It's killing children all over the world, and they don't really have a voice. They're young, and they cannot protect themselves. Only we can do that for them. Only we can stand up for them. These children matter. And so today, I'm going to tell you a heartbreaking story about a little girl who was felled by this world. I don't think you're ready for it, but let's get into it. Okay, so today's case is a really, really sad and heartbreaking one. It is a case of child abuse. I've noticed that child abuse does not get talked about as much as many of these other crimes or other types of murders because it's so hard to talk about. And I cried about 50 times when I was researching, but this is why it needs to be talked about. Child abuse is an epidemic. Just in 2019, an estimated 1,840 children died due to child abuse and neglect. Five children die every day because of child abuse. 70% of these cases are younger than three years old, and those statistics make me mad. Children are pure and innocent, and we are given them to care for them and to love them. We need to start recognizing the signs of child abuse and never question yourself if you feel like you should report something, if you feel like something is wrong. These children cannot protect themselves. Only we can save them by standing up for them. Exactly, especially with your statistics of less than three years old. Those children definitely don't have a voice. No, it's so sad. Awilda Lopez gave birth to Eliza Isquierdo on February 11, 1989 at Woodhull Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. Something wasn't quite right with the baby's mother, and the baby was showing signs of withdrawal. The hospital tested for drugs, and it was confirmed that Eliza was born addicted to crack cocaine. And 
you do this and then Nick, you write. So how does that work? Like on how they decide to test and... Oh, it's just different everywhere, but um, sometimes if the mothers come into labor and delivery and they have a history of drug use, then um, their urine will get sent for toxicology. And then if it's positive in the mother, then we're, we are able to send the infant's umbilical cord to get tested for several different types of drugs. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Because of this confirmation of drugs in Elisa's system, Elisa's father, Gustavo Izquierdo, petitioned the court for full custody. And thankfully, he was able to get it and bring Elisa into his care full time. He struggled at first with being a single father, but he had help from family, friends, and co-workers. One co-worker, Cynthia Nuldro, said, quote, We helped him with formula, we showed him how to change diapers and comb her hair. He caught on fine. He loved that little girl. End quote. He even took parenting classes at YWCA in Brooklyn, New York, where he would later enroll Elisa in an early childhood program and preschool in 1990 when she was one years old. This was a private Montessori school, and he wanted to give Elisa the best opportunities that he possibly could. Gustava knew that Elisa would face challenges in her life with a mother that was choosing drugs over her children. But that same year, in 1990, Awilda sent a signed affidavit to the court stating that she overcame her drug addiction and found a permanent residence with her new husband at the Farga Houses in Brooklyn. Awilda wanted her daughter back, and to make sure she got her, she had to put on a show for the courts. She had to pretend like her life was put together, like she was on the right path, and by doing so, she was granted unsupervised visits with Elisa in 1991. Wait, so how, what do you mean she had to pretend? (laughs) So her life wasn't really put together, but she was kind of showing on the outside like, yes, I have it together. I got a husband. I'm not doing drugs, but really she was. Okay, we'll find that out later. Yes. And so she got those unsupervised visits with Elisa in 1991 and Elisa was two years old at this time. So... Elisa would visit her mom's house on the weekends where Awilda lived with her husband, Carlos Lopez, and Awilda's other children. Awilda had also lost her two older children when she lost Elisa, but they had moved back into Awilda's care just months before Awilda was given visits with Elisa. Awilda and Carlos Lopez also had another child this same year in 1991. And then during one of Elisa's visits, Carlos Lopez accused Awilda of seeing other men. He ended up stabbing Awilda 17 times with a pocket knife. Of course, the couple split and Carlos served a brief jail sentence for assault. But following his sentence, Awilda decided to rekindle the relationship with Carlos and he moved back in. How in the world was Elisa still allowed to have visitation in this home? So at this time, if I'm following you correctly, she has two older children, Elisa, and then one with her boyfriend. Yes. One with her new husband. She had married him and they moved oh, in together. Yeah. So she has four children okay. at this time. I think eventually she ends up having six children total. Okay. But this is in 1991 when Elisa is two. Wow. Okay. But 
in my opinion, right then and there, the caseworker should have stripped Awilda of her visitation because clearly that's an unsafe environment. Yeah, I guess it depends on if the violence occurred when the children were home. I mean, it's not... from Yeah, from what I read, this stabbing was during one of Elisa's weekend visits. And it was the same year that her mom just barely got awarded any visitation. And they just allowed her to continue visiting there, even when Carlos got out of jail and came back into the home. Okay, yeah, I know the goal, at least the goal for our state, is to keep families unified. Right. So, but they usually have, like, a supervision process. Yeah. I feel like if if this type of situation were to happen, (laughs) hopefully somebody... Um, in the system would know about it and um, be able to get involved and get the resources in place that the family needs. Right. But I don't think that they did. Probably not. The systems are very overwhelmed. Definitely. At this point, Awilda was fully back into the throes of her drug addiction Gustavo and Elisa's teachers started to notice things were off every time Elisa came back from a visit at her mom's home. They were noticing regular bruising. Elisa would often throw up when she returned to her father's home and would always have a hard time walking. During their regular bedtime routine, Gustavo noticed some bruising around Elisa's genital region and around this same time, Elisa had started to wet the bed. Gustavo knew in his gut that his baby was not safe with Awilda, so he contacted the Child Welfare Administration in 1992. While they investigated the situation, Elisa's visits with her mother were stopped for a brief period of time. But Elisa's safety wouldn't last long, and she was shortly ordered to start back up her weekly visits to her mother's home. Question. So at the time of the bruising, the bedwetting... Um, was she two? Let's see. In 1992, and she was born in 1989. So she was three. Three. Okay. Well, yep. She was three years old. Yep. Definitely some dangerous signs. Yeah. Some signs of abuse. Throughout all this anguish with Awilda, Gustavo tried to give Elisa the best memories that he could. They went to the park, to the movies, and even some trips to the circus. He had stacks of pictures of Elisa in his wallet, and he was always ready to show anyone that he talked to. When Elisa turned four, he rented a banquet hall to celebrate her baptism into the Catholic Church. Barbara Woodruff was a neighbor of Gustavo's and said, quote, When you saw this man walking down the street with his kid, he was a proud daddy. He was really proud. She was just as proud being his daughter as he was of being her father, end quote. Gustavo wasn't a rich man, although he did have Elisa enrolled in that private school. Like I said earlier, he just wanted to give his daughter the best possible resources that he could. He sure does seem like he was being the best dad that he could. Yeah, it seems like he was trying so hard. He took those parenting classes, which is so sweet, and it sounds like it was really just them two. Yeah. He had come to the United States as a Cuban immigrant and worked hard as a chef at the local homeless shelter. This was actually how he met Awilda because she had been a shelter resident. He worked long hours to provide this life for him and Elisa. 
Sometimes she would even come to work with him and his co-workers would all pitch in to care for her. With his low income, he was actually falling behind on his tuition payments to Elisa's Montessori school. And the school recommended him to talk to one of their benefactors, Prince Michael of Greece. A benefactor is basically someone who is willing to donate money to a cause or to help another person. So Prince Michael fell in love with Elisa when he met her and her father. And the story of this single father trying to give his daughter the world really touched him. So he agreed to pay off Gustavo's debt to the school. And he also offered to pay for the rest of Elisa's private education until she graduated. Oh, like until she was 18 or? Yeah, all the way till she was 18, he agreed that he would pay for all of her schooling. Oh, that's great. I know. Gustavo was in tears and was so thankful. They stayed in touch with Prince Michael. He would often send gifts for Elisa and she would return thank you letters to him. So he really blessed this family's life more than Gustavo ever thought possible. Oh, that's so neat. I know and selfless. So when Elisa turned five in 1994, she took a screening test for the prestigious school called Brooklyn Friends School and she passed. She was brilliant and Gustavo was beaming at the seams with excitement. He was so proud of his little girl and honestly proud of himself too. He was doing everything in his power to give Elisa everything. This is really a miracle because a lot of babies that are born addicted to drugs have long-term um, complications from it. Um, oh, with, really? Yeah, with like learning disabilities and stuff you know, like ADHD, um, things like that. So that that really is a miracle that she was so smart. Like so smart and doing good. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. Probably from her good environment from her dad. So one of her teachers, Barbara Simmons, stated, quote, how many men brush their little girl's hair and part it in a perfect line, end quote. But behind all this happiness was also a darkness that Elisa faced, the time she spent at her mother's home. In April of 1994, Awilda and her husband Carlos had moved their kids into the Rutgers housing project on the Lower East Side. Through all of this, Awilda starts to make these insane accusations about Elisa being a child of the devil and how she learned this voodoo and witchcraft from her father. How old's Eliza by now? She, in 1994, she's five years old. And at this point, Gustavo knew that Awilda was dangerous. And although he was building this great life for Eliza here in the United States, he was watching Awilda tear her down and do everything in her power to destroy Eliza. So he devised a plan. Gustavo asked his cousin Elsa if she could help him protect Eliza. Gustavo explained all the stuff that he was witnessing Elisa go through. He had asked Elsa if she would take in Elisa and raise her in his hometown of Cuba. This broke his heart and shattered him to even think about. But he had this overwhelming feeling that he had to get Elisa out of the U.S. so that her mom could not find her. He purchased plane tickets and was ready to give his daughter this new life, a life away from the abuse she was suffering. But... 
shortly after Gustavo purchased these plane tickets, on the day their plane was set to depart to Cuba, he was rushed to the hospital and pronounced dead of lung cancer. Oh, no. Oh. I know. So he had set the entire plan in place because he actually knew he was sick. Okay. That makes some sense. I was thinking... Like, he definitely was doing it to get her away from the abuse, but how hard that would be for him. I know, like, to send her off. Yeah. And so he was trying to get her away from the abuse, but more so for, like, when after he died, because I'm sure he assumed she would go to her mom's once he passed away. Yeah. Aw. Yeah. So he knew he would die soon after he was diagnosed that year, and he knew he had to get Elisa far away from her mom. He was so close to saving his daughter. He died within a few hours of getting ready to board her on a plane to Cuba. Upon hearing the news of Gustavo's death, the director of Elisa's school, who is Phyllis Bryce, actually contacted a family court judge to let them know that she had concerns and numerous members of the school staff also had concerns about Elisa's safety should her mother gain custody of her. But Awilda jumped at that opportunity to take custody of Elisa. But it wouldn't be easy because Elsa, Gustavo's cousin, was not going to make it easy. She applied for custody as well, and a battle started. Throughout the court hearings, Elisa's social workers and her court-appointed attorney testified on behalf of Awilda. They stated that she was a fit mom and that Elisa would benefit from being with her mom. Elisa's teacher and her benefactor, Prince Michael, testified on the other side. They gave their stories about seeing bruising on Elisa and her behavior whenever she returned from her mother's house. Elsa, Gustavo's cousin, also lacked the money to pay for an attorney, so she attended all the court hearings without any legal representation. And then there's a Wilda, and she had her application for custody in with a lawyer. And according to Elsa, she testified that Awilda's attorneys criticized her and told her that she had a lot of nerve to try and take Elisa from her biological mother. I mean, yeah, that would be hard to get a kid away from their mother, but... Uh, yeah, and there's a lot of like clear signs and that's kind of what Elsa replied. Like, I'm trying to get her from her mom because I have I'm scared of her going with her mom. Despite all the evidence and all the witnesses to Elisa's little life from the people who actually knew her, Judge Phoebe Greenbaum awarded custody of Elisa to her mom, Awilda Lopez. As soon as Awilda was granted custody, she retaliated against those that testified against her. And even though all of Elisa's private schooling was being paid for by Prince Michael, Awilda pulled her from the YWCA's Montessori school and enrolled her in Manhattan's public school. Yeah, she definitely did not have her child's best interest. No, she did not. This stint at public school also didn't last long because the abuse that Elisa was suffering was too much to go unnoticed. Elisa's public school teachers were mandatory reporters. So when they noticed bruising on Elisa and how her behavior was defensive and withdrawn, many of them reported Awilda to the child welfare system. 
On March 14, 1995, the child welfare system got an anonymous letter. And the author of this letter stated that Awilda Lopez had cut off a bunch of Elisa's hair and was locking her in a dark room for extensive period of time. Six days later, after this letter was received, Elisa was admitted to the hospital with a fractured shoulder and it was clear that the wound had been untreated for three days. And the public school continued to have increasing concerns. But the Manhattan Child Welfare Authorities replied to the school that their concerns were, quote, not reportable due to a lack of direct evidence. Well, you would think the hospital's a mandatory um, reporting site as well. So you would think that the hospital would have to report the abuse if they... Um, thought that the fracture was caused by child abuse. I know, and I wonder if they did since it's in the reports, but I'm not sure. So the representative that actually endorsed Awilda's motion to get custody of her daughter started to get phone calls from Awilda herself, and Awilda was complaining that Elisa couldn't control her bladder and had cut off her own hair and was apparently drinking from the toilet. And in response to this call, this representative called the Manhattan Child Welfare and they rebuffed all his requests for them to visit that residence. So the representative that helped her get custody called um, Child Services? Yes, ended up calling them because Awilda kept calling her and saying all those crazy things about Elisa. And he had... And she didn't... He didn't believe it. Yeah, he he thought something was definitely going on. After all the reports were made, they were investigated. But like I said, the investigators deemed the allegations unsubstantiated. After Wilda learned about the school reporting her, she ripped Elisa out of school completely. Elisa would no longer have a safe place to escape from her home life. Awilda kept her locked in her room. At this point, Elisa had five siblings, but she was singled out. She was called the devil's child, and her mom would tell her and everyone close to the family that she had a demon inside of her. Elisa would often cry for her dad and ask her mom why her dad wasn't here anymore. Awilda always replied very coldly, screaming, quote, He's dead. He's not coming back, end quote. Neighbors of Awilda would hear Elisa screaming for help. They could hear her scream and beg for her mom not to hurt her. But they never reported this. The neighbors would state later on that they just believed it was Elisa's overdramatic reaction to her mother's discipline. Which is absolutely not okay. Oh my god. I know. Like most kids aren't screaming for help when they're getting disciplined. Right. Many neighbors also described Elisa as a, quote, walking dead girl, end quote. So why they didn't call authorities, why they didn't report Awilda, I'll never know. I guess only they will know. And that's just something that they have to live with, um, that decision to turn a blind eye. They called her a walking dead girl because they knew the mom would kill her? I think because she looked like she was dying, like she just was withdrawn. I think she was 
she was she just didn't look well. Okay. While locked in her room, Elisa was not allowed to use the bathroom or eat. While she could watch her siblings eat food at each meal and snacks throughout the day, she was forced to go to the bathroom on her own bed. And her mom would have her eat her own excrement. Ugh, are you kidding? It like makes me have tears in my eyes. It's so sad. I can't even imagine. How do, how can people even do that? Like how, do they not have a conscience? I have no idea. Even like when I look at, because this case hits close to me, I feel like because Charlie's five. Even when I look at her and think of someone doing this, it's like, oh. It hurts. Yeah, I just can't even imagine that people like allow themselves to do that. I know. It's like crazy. So Elisa was tortured in this home for more than a year. Awilda would use her own daughter's head as a mop. Elisa was also being burned and sexually assaulted by her mother. Wait, was the mom still with Gustavo? No, that was the dad. Was the mom still with Carlos? Yes, the mom was still with Carlos at this point, but I think he was in and out of jail. So was he the, was he the one that was sexually abusing her or was this the mother? I actually think it was the mom. And this is just like what's reported. I mean, the Carlos guy is a huge a-hole, but... It sounds like he would encourage the other kids to kind of beat up on Elisa. But as far as I can tell, all the abuse of her was coming directly from her mom. What a sad environment, not only for her, but also for all her siblings. I know. It's so sad. Two days before Thanksgiving, Awilda called her sister. She told her that something seemed to be wrong with Elisa. She explained it to her by saying, quote, Elisa is like retarded on the bed, end quote, which that part like makes me sad. She said she's retarded on the bed. Yeah. Even having to say it makes me like have tears in my eyes because she was dying. And that's how her mom was explaining it. Her mom has some major issues. Like literally F her. I hate her. (sighs) So Awilda continues on explaining to her sister that she's just lying on the bed, not talking, not eating. She's not going to the bathroom. She also explains that she has fluid coming from her nose and her mouth. Her sister tells her to take Elisa to the hospital, but Awilda doesn't. She leaves her lying on the bed until the next day, November 22nd, 1995. She sees a neighbor outside and asks them to come inside to give her an opinion on Elisa's state. As soon as the neighbor lays eyes on Elisa and they cannot find any signs of life, that neighbor does not hesitate to call 911. When he calls 911, something that Awilda refused to do, Awilda actually threatened to commit suicide. Well, probably because she knew she was headed to jail. Yeah, because she knew she killed her daughter. The day before Thanksgiving at 924 a.m., police and paramedics arrive at apartment 20A at the Rutgers House housing project in Manhattan, New York. Rescue workers gently get Elisa from her bed and fireman Michael Brown starts CPR hopelessly. Elisa Isquierdo, six years old, is pronounced dead a year and a half after her father passed away. 
that fluid leaking from her nose and her mouth was determined to be brain fluid after Elisa suffered a brain hemorrhage. The medical examiner on this was shocked and hurt as she examined Elisa's little body. Her body was riddled with bruises, burns, and cuts. Her genitalia and anus were torn with signs of trauma both inside and around. Her fingers were broken. One finger was so broken that the bone was actually sticking out of her skin. Can you imagine how much pain she was in? No, I hate it. I It's like so hard for me to even think about like what she was going through. And she's only six years old. She couldn't even protect herself. The community, of course, was outraged, as you would expect, and Awilda quickly became the most hated woman in New York. Judge Greenbaum was subjected to severe criticism regarding her decision when she awarded custody to Awilda. Well, there was just so much evidence, it sounds like, against about her being abused from school. Exactly. It sounds like there was tons of evidence. Everyone in her life was testifying to the abuse. But Judge Greenbaum responds to the criticism by saying she was merely following procedural recommendations when she had made her decision. But in response to that, the mayor of the city actually stated to the media, quote, the judge ultimately makes the decision based on all the facts and the records and is supposed to go behind those things to make determinations, end quote. Well, even if even with her in that house, it'd be such a big red flag of all that. You would think that she would have social workers like popping by for visits and making sure she's okay. Yeah, like she has bruises and burns and her fingers are broken and like no one was checking on her. The school had to have reported that she was no longer going. Right. And sadly... The system just failed her. Like it does so many. Yeah. So the community pulled together to raise money to give Elisa a proper funeral. That money didn't end up needing to be used because the funeral was donated. Her funeral was held at the Ponce Funeral Home in Brooklyn, New York on November 29th, 1995. More than 300 people showed up for her that day. The New York City mayor at the time was Rudolph Giolani, and he also attended Elisa's funeral. Following this case, he formed the Administration for Children's Services in 1996, and this was the first freestanding organization dedicated to child services and was required to report to the mayor directly. Then, shortly after this, on February 12, 1996, Governor George Pataki formally signed Elisa's Law into legislation. It was named in Elisa's honor and was signed into law in the presence of several relatives of Elisa, plus numerous social workers, school teachers, everyone who had attempted to intervene or inform the child welfare authorities. It is a law designed to balance the need for increased accountability. Elisa's law continues to hold the Child Welfare Agency of New York City and the Administration for Child Services publicly accountable for performance. I'm so glad she got a a law named after her so her memory can live on. And she's not just forgotten. 
Yeah, exactly. This um, story really reminds me of that Netflix documentary, um, the Gabriel, the trials of Gabriel Fernandez in L.A. That one hurt me so much because he was felled by the system. Yeah, very, very similar. Like, he was being so abused and it was so clear. And schools reported it. People reported it. And, and no one helped them. It's so sad. A Wilda was arrested that same day that responders pronounced Elisa dead. And as she was dragged off, she was screaming that she didn't do it. And on a YouTube video titled Little Girl Lost, The Life and Death of Elisa Isquierdo, they interviewed Awilda while she was at Rikers Prison before a trial or sentencing happened. She claims in this clip that she would never burn or murder her child. She claims that someone else came into her apartment and did this. She talks about how she's sorry that she hit Elisa, but that she didn't murder her. Her first story is that she fell asleep on the couch and when she woke up, she somehow woke up in her room stating that she doesn't know how this happened unless someone came into her house and did this. Later on, she goes on to blame the stepdad. Although he was also a monster, he was in jail on a parole violation at this time. Yeah, it was obviously the mother. Yeah. Awilda admits in this interview that the only people inside the home were her and her kids, but someone else still somehow murdered Elisa, not her. She's obviously absolutely insane and off her rocker, but one year later in August of 1996, Awilda agrees to take a deal and plead guilty to second degree murder after she maintained her innocence for all those months. Awilda confessed to having thrown Elisa headfirst into a concrete wall two times, two days prior to her contacting her neighbor, adding that Elisa never talked or walked after this incident. She claims that she took the deal so that her other children do not have to relive this event. She was sentenced to 15 years to life at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in Bedford Hills, New York. She has since been moved to Albion Correctional Facility in Albion, New York. So was the deal for her not to get the death penalty? I'm not sure. Or if she thinks she'll get out on parole one day. So she got sentenced to life. Yeah, 15 years to life. Oh. And then on October 29th, 1996, Elisa's stepfather, Carlos Lopez, was also sentenced. He was sentenced to serve between one and a half to three years in prison, and it would run consecutive with the sentence he was already serving at the time of Elisa's death. And this sentence was in relation to an instance where he abused her back in October of 1995 where he had repeatedly banged Elisa's head against that concrete wall in the presence of her siblings. Oh, he should have gotten more. I know. Elisa Isquierdo's five siblings ended up being raised in separate foster homes. Reportedly, they all suffered psychological trauma because of the acts and the physical and mental cruelty that they were forced to witness. In 2012, Awilda received her first rejection at parole. All attempts since have been denied and she is still incarcerated. 
please, please, please write to the Office of Victims Assistance to advocate for Awilda Lopez to remain in prison and not be granted parole. I honestly hope she ends up dying in jail. She should never live another day free on this earth. Her next parole hearing is January 2022. We'll have to watch for this to see. Hopefully it's she doesn't get it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to keep myself updated on this. I'm going to write in and petition for her to stay in there. After Elisa's funeral was held, there was a battle over the rights to her body. Her dad's family wanted her to be buried next to her dad, and her mother's family did not. The rights of Elisa Isquero's body were given to her mother, and Elisa was buried above a family member in her maternal family that she had never met. Someone that died before she was born. I do not like that at all. No, it like pissed me off when I saw it. Why can't she be buried next to her father? The courts failed her in life and they failed her after in this. And for so many years, Elisa didn't even have a headstone. She now has a small plaque that just lays in front of the headstone of the family member that she's buried above. It's just like absolutely horrible and stupid. It is. She, I mean, that's just a common sense thing. She should have been buried next to her dad. Yeah, she loved her dad. He was a great dad and they should have been together. Her plaque above her grave reads, Eliza is queerdo. World, please watch over the children. February 11th, 1989 to November 22nd, 1995. This case today was so hard for me to talk about. Anything that involves children kills me, especially when it's done by the children's own parents. We need to talk about Elisa. We need to talk about the kids that are going through this. Child abuse is an epidemic. It's killing children, and they don't have a voice for themselves. Elisa, I just want you to know that I love you. We love you. You were felled by this world. You were felled by everyone around you. You should have been cared about. Your mom should have cared for you. What happened to you was not fair. No one stood up for you when it mattered. Everybody stood up for you too late. So I'm going to share your story so that your story can teach us all a valuable lesson. Look out for all the kids. Keep your eyes open. And if you feel like anything's wrong, please call. Please report something. Get people to watch over these kids. They need our help. They can't do it by themselves. I'm going to be giving you a new palate cleanser. 
Did you know there was a cat virgin <laughs> of the corgi? It's called the Munchkin Cat. I'm going to look at a picture right now. I think it's so chubby and cute. It has tiny legs. Should I ask my mom to get one? I want to buy one of those cats. Goodbye. Have a good day. And this, this is, to, is to help you be calm after my ma, mom's very scary um, podcast. Goodbye. Have a good day. If you enjoyed this show today, please share it with your friends and onto your social media. If you have Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star written review. I'm trying to get to 100 five-star reviews in our first month, and I would appreciate it so much if you contributed to that. If you have any case suggestions or suggestions on how to do our episodes, please email them to us at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. I also want to do a segment where we share your stories or your questions or anything true crime related from our listeners. So if you have something that you want to say that you want featured on the podcast, please email us. Follow us on social media for pictures and info on each case we cover. On Instagram and TikTok, you can find us at truecrime underscore podcast. On Twitter, you can find us at truecrime underscore pod. This podcast is written, hosted, and edited by me, Kayla Waters. It's co-hosted by my mom, Alicia Jenkins. My daughter, Charlie Waters, gives us a palate cleanser at the end of each episode so that we can recharge and... Our original graphic art was done by Arthur Max, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz. You can find him on Instagram at InPajamasMusic. Stick around to get organization info. If you want to report child abuse, but you want to do it anonymously, please call 1-800-4-A-CHILD. This is 1-800-422-4453. All the reports can be kept anonymous, so please call if you feel like you need to. Let's protect these children. Let's start standing up for them. Another organization I found that seems pretty great is called Prevent Child Abuse America. They want to prevent child abuse before it happens. The Prevent Child Abuse America is a leading champion for all children across the United States. You can help prevent child abuse and neglect because early experiences in a child do impact them through their life positively and negatively. You can go to their site, which is preventchildabuse.org, and you can leave a donation. Your contribution will help fund their work to enable the safe, stable, and nurturing relationships and environments that ensure children and families succeed and communities thrive. Like I said, they're committed to preventing child abuse and neglect before it happens. They promote programs and resources informed by science that enable kids, families, and entire communities to thrive. 
Prevent Child Abuse New York is the only private nonprofit agency serving the entire state whose single mission is to prevent child abuse in all its forms. They state that all children have the right to a safe, secure, and supportive environment. You can find a parenting program here or book a training near you. They have a helpline 1-800-CHILDREN which is 1-800-244-5373. You can donate to their cause to help support other children. Their website is www.preventchildabuseny.org.